Hi, I'm Brandon Butler, and you are listening to Rutabaga, a little podcast that will bring you interviews with some of the more interesting expats I've met in my 22 years living abroad. I left the U.S. in 1995 for what I thought would be a short little adventure teaching English in South Korea, but that little adventure ended up lasting for most of my adult life. Besides being addicted, I guess, to the excitement that living in foreign countries gave me, another great thing about the expat lifestyle was just meeting really cool people from all over the world. So after about 20 years living abroad doing a bunch of different jobs, I decided to quit my job as a financial editor in Hong Kong and go on the road to interview some of those people and tell you their stories. These stories and interviews originate mostly in South Korea, where I spent the largest part of my uh, many years living abroad. But we'll also take you to Vancouver, Canada, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Atlanta, Tokyo, Indianapolis, and China, where I'm recording this in my tiny little old lane apartment in old Shanghai. It's a little old building that was built back in the 1930s, and you're probably going to hear some buzzes and hums and maybe some neighbors arguing in the background in this intro episode. But anyway, listening to my little intro recorded in my noisy old lane apartment in central old Shanghai will get you used to the upcoming episodes, which I recorded all on the road in various settings with a lot of different kind of noises. I'll tell you what inspired the name Rutabaga and and the spelling with two O's instead of a U later. It's not completely random, maybe a little bit. Here's just a little taste of some of the people you'll hear about in upcoming episodes. Jordan Smith is a a friend of mine from California I met when he was doing a short stint teaching English in South Korea in about 2000, I think. I don't remember exactly how I met Jordan, but somehow we became drinking, hiking, and exploring buddies. Unlike a lot of the expats I knew at the time, and myself, Jordan had a master plan, and Korea was just a, a way station on the way to a really impressive career as a professor, a poet, a translator fluent in Spanish and Japanese, and always seems to be learning, trying to learn new languages. So I caught up with Jordan in Tokyo last year to see if I could figure out how his journey took him on such an amazing trajectory. So yesterday was an atypical Saturday morning where I ended up auditioning for an ASICS commercial that will feature three poets. And Jordan told me a little bit about his career goals, translating Japanese literature into English. Like, I'm more interested in finding the new writers who are going to be what what everyone calls the next Murakami Haruki. And while I was at it, I coaxed a multilingual rap out of Jordan on the mean streets of Tokyo's Omote Sando, which is basically the uh, Beverly Hills of Tokyo, I think they say. I got bad news. It didn't work? The first half of that. I can do it again. Starting a new business in a foreign country may may sound a bit passe these days to the seasoned expat because we probably all know a lot of folks who have done it. But it really takes a lot of guts and smarts to pull it off, considering all the obstacles you have to face when you're starting a business in an unfamiliar territory. Two guys I know have done that were of particular interest to me because 
they both hailed from my home state of Alabama. And in all these years I've been living overseas, I've only met a handful of Alabamians living abroad. And more importantly is that um, I think these two guys were really thinking outside the box when it came to their entrepreneurial ideas. I talked to Linus Kim, who I didn't really know was from my hometown of Birmingham, Alabama. I just knew he was a guy from Alabama, but who after jobs in the Hollywood film industry and finance ended up taking his passion for Alabama style barbecue to South Korea, starting with just some small pop-up shops and then going big with two massive brick and mortar restaurants in Seoul. And his Alabama barbecue restaurants are now popular with both expats and trendy soulites. Linus told me a little bit about what gave him the idea. I want to do this barbecue business in, in L.A., but I have no money. But a friend of mine had moved to Korea and told me, Linus, let's work on a, let's work on a project together, like a food media project. I brought my sauces and some of my gear. Linus told me a bit about his experience doing business with some pretty colorful locals. We jokingly call him the gangster. He's, I, I, he's not like a violent gangster that like stabs people in the shower kind of thing, but he's an old boy. And he told me about one of his biggest motivators. I like money, I like spending it, but for some reason I've, I've failed at things where the, you know, where the carrot at the end of the stick was, you know, a good wad of cash that I really, really needed. But fear of looking bad <laughs> really did. It really works for me. I think that's the Catholic shaming and the Korean thing, the shaming. <laughs> and in keeping with the home state and foodie theme, I met up with Joe McPherson, another fellow Alabamian who made his mark on the Korean food scene with his food blog called Zen Kimchi. Just based on his serious passion for Korean food and history and culture, he started the website years ago, basically as a what he called a food journal, just to write about the food that he was eating in South Korea for his friends and family back home. But that little journal soon gained enough traction where Joe was getting contacted by international media, and he was featured on Travel Channel and in the Lonely Planet Korea Guide, and he got contacted by... New York Times, who wanted to talk to him about his expertise in the Korea Chimek, or chicken and beer trend. Then, yeah, I got an email from New York Times saying, we're doing this piece on Korean fried chicken. Do you know much about it? Yeah, sure. And maybe even more impressive to me was that he got a chance to work with Anthony Bourdain when Anthony was in Korea working on his Parts Unknown series. And Joe kind of served as a fixer for Anthony and his team and showed them some of the more out-of-the-way places around Seoul. So I talked to Joe about his unusual career path, um, going from working in talk radio in the States. This unknown guy from Vermont called Bernie Sanders. The phone would ring in Atlanta, and i pick, hello? He goes, hey, Joe, I had a great time on this show. I'd love to come back next week. To being inspired by Anthony Bourdain and eventually working with him. I said, like, I'm holding Anthony Bourdain's jacket. And, and the director heard me say it, and he goes, okay, give it back to me. <laughs> and about some of his current business ventures, he does food tours around Seoul and haunted Seoul tours. We've had a clairvoyant on the tour that says, a woman greets us at the gate. And the British guy hands his camera over to me and says, is that her? And he showed me a picture of a lamp, and there's a figure of a woman underneath the lamp. And I think now is a good time to throw in that Joe just recently was included as an influential foreigner in Korea on Wikipedia. 
A little side note, I interviewed Joe before Anthony Bourdain committed suicide, and everyone who knew Joe knew that Anthony was a big influence on him in his writing style and his career choices and his involvement in food and tourism and culture. So I caught up with Joe for a few minutes recently just to kind of get his thoughts on Anthony Bourdain's suicide. We'll hear that in Joe's upcoming episode. Probably one of the most well-known guests on Rutabaga, and talkative, I might add, is Dave Sperling. Dave is a pioneering digital nomad with his davesslcafe.com website, which he started way back in the 1990s. Dave's ESL Cafe just was basically the lonely planet for English teachers or English as a second language teachers around the globe. I think I first used the site in about 1996. It's a site that English teachers use for finding jobs, for finding information about teaching and finding activities for the classroom and basically just finding out about um, life in those cities that they are working in. And I know young English teachers who are still using it today, and the site has hardly changed in all those years. And people who know Dave or you know follow him on social media because of his website, they know that Dave can be found pretty much anywhere working on the website from his little laptop, whether it's a cafe in Amsterdam or northern Thailand or one of his homes in South, Southern California. Dave has definitely been an inspiration to a lot of people, if not just from helping them find a job or or being a resource to make their jobs easier, also just in his lifestyle and his creativity in coming up with this business idea, which he's been running for so many years, which has allowed him to travel and work from wherever he wants to. Dave graciously invited me into his home in Southern California, and we spent the afternoon sitting in his kitchen and talking and eventually riding around in his van to pick up some glasses from a local shop. And since several hours in his kitchen wasn't enough to wrap up an interview with the with the talkative Dave Sperling, he also invited me up to San Francisco to his apartment a couple of days later, where I happened to be heading anyway. We spent another couple hours there drinking beer and talking about, well, about everything from why I was interviewing him. Yeah, why I are mean, you interviewing? Yeah, me? I don't know. So let's just cut this <laughs> yeah. off right now. Okay, thanks for listening. Hey, dog's <laughs> over there. He's a lot more interesting. We talked about his passion for the finer things in life, like wines and vintage clothing and Japanese whiskeys. I went when I was in Kyoto. It's like the mo- one of the most famous distilleries. It's certainly in Japan. It was like going to a cathedral. We also talked about his hobbies, like uh, like running. He's an avid runner biking, motorcycling, and getting tattoos with his son by famous tattoo artists in Europe. My son uh, was invited uh, by his tattoo artist to be entered into the uh, Paris Tattoo Expo. We talked about living multicultural lives, which is something that Dave and his family know a lot about. I feel so much richer as a person, and then that goes back to like teaching abroad or just being overseas, just being part of the cultures that my siblings uh, and my family, um, they have not experienced that. And that's why my children who have experienced that, they feel different, I should say, than their peers because of what they experience from, from going back and forth mm-hmm. and being bicultural. And, of course, we talked about how davesesl.com made Dave like one of the very first digital nomads ever. And he told me about that moment that he realized Dave's ESL Cafe could actually make him some money. At 99, I was up late at night. Probably my daughter 
was up late. When I woke up the next morning, all these ads came in. I had forgot to switch it over. But suddenly I had like, you know, I had ads. People were paying. And I go, oh my God, uh, what do I do? <laughs> Most memorable for me getting to see Dave vacuum up spilled coffee grinds out of my back. I'll tell you that story in that episode. Music is definitely another theme that will pop up in upcoming episodes. For starters, if you like the music you hear in this episode or any of the little teasers I put out so far that you might have heard, then you might be interested in hearing the story of We Need Surgery. Full disclosure, I was the drummer in We Need Surgery, or surgery as you might hear the band referred to. But I really wanted to tell that story of how this little band of expat English teachers went from playing a few weekend gigs in South Korea to landing a three-album record deal in Canada and how it acrimoniously fell apart in the end. So, And a little correction here because the other guys would laugh at me saying a couple of weekend gigs because we played a couple of weekend gigs a month for several years and sometimes even a couple of shows in one night in different places. So I think it's fair to say that we paid our dues in South Korea. I went to three different countries to track down all of my former bandmates and just talk to them about the band and see what that talented bunch of people is doing now. First, I went to the outskirts of Tokyo to meet up with our old guitarist and my sometimes nemesis in the band at the time, Valentino Avignoni. We talked about all of his really interesting projects that he's got going on in Japan and how we survived those years as, as uh, bandmates who didn't get along very well, but made some pretty good music and became almost famous. At least we like to think so. Hey, brother. <laughs> good to see you, my man. Oh my God. <laughs> Great. You too. He has managed to parlay his fluency in Japanese and his, what I guess is like otaku-ness for all things guitar, into a little business empire on the outskirts of Tokyo, where he runs an English school, a guitar school, and he makes his own line of vape flavors just for the Japan market. What flavors are you doing? Today I got a blood orange with a vanilla bean Madagascar vanilla bean ice cream. And Valentino gave me his interesting theory on why we need surgery did not make it. I think everybody, I think 99.99% of the world didn't like surgery. <laughs> I think we love surgery. And Valentino was also nice enough to, to give me some of the music that he's kind of been dabbling in in the last couple of years since we need surgery's demise. He said I could play a few samples for you here. flew to Venice Beach in Los Angeles, where our bassist Paul Johnson is working on the business side of the music industry. And Paul had his own theories about why we need surgery, just couldn't survive. I think the band had this idea that 
well, if we get signed, then all our troubles are over, and they'll yeah. t- they'll take care of everything, and we yeah. and we made it, and it's it's just not that it's not happen. true, and and you still have to take care of the marketing and business side of it. Ultimately, you're responsible for your own fate. But he's also still putting his heart into music in a project with his brother, and they invited me into their little studio in Venice Beach, home studio, and played some of the tunes they're working on, and said I could share it with you. So here's a little taste of that. I went to Korea to visit Surgery's other guitarist, Im Jung-gyu, who was a bit of a legend on Seoul's underground music scene in the aughts, early 2000s, I guess. We somehow cajoled him into abandoning, abandoning his popular band there, joining our band and even moving to North America with us. That's why, like, uh, when you asked me, like, to join the band or something, like, oh, this is fucking good, great chance, eh? But did you like our music? Yeah, sure. Honestly, <laughs> not very much. Like, yeah. my style is, like, a very rock and roll. More raw very raw and rock yeah. and roll. But yeah, when yeah. surgery, the, the style is kind of, yeah, minimal, like, fashionable. Like, but, yeah. you know, I didn't hate that. Yeah. Actually, like, I can enjoy that sound very much. Also, like... So now he's back at his unique style of power punk pop. Although I really wanted to go up to Canada to see our charismatic and talented frontman, Misho Michael Stefanik, in his current digs in Toronto, time ran short due to my new job in Shanghai. But I did manage to go up to Indianapolis to hang out and interview my good friend and former surgery manager, Chris Madinger Madden. And then we got online with Misho and did a three-way interview. Chris talked about some of the struggles we went through as a young band, crammed in a little house in Vancouver trying to trying to get a record deal. There was a survival element to it for all of us. How are we going to get the money to eat and make it through this? And a lot of late nights, a lot of drinking and smoking and all of that. And Misho talked about catharsis by way of burning old band t-shirts. I was uh, I was dating this girl and we were on this whole thing of like cleansing our past and you know moving forward and stuff and I was like and I was doing some spring cleaning for clothes I had oh dude I, and then I found that t-shirt she's like you gotta burn it and I'm like yeah right on so I just made this cool video it's kind of funny it was just and and moving forward in my life and being a better person that little interview was a little bit of a joy and a bit of a heartbreak when some old wounds were opened and some feelings were hurt. Anyway, I hope this little ditty that Misho made, especially just for Rutabaga, will make everybody happy. Hope you enjoy this, listeners, from Misho. It's Brad's Podcast. Anyway. 
Thanks, Misha, for this song. I love it, and it reminds me just what an amazing melody maker you always were. By the way, if you like some of the music samples I'm playing for you in the in this episode, hopefully they'll let me play some of these songs in full in those episodes. And I want to thank Light Organ Records in Vancouver, Canada, for letting me use the We Need Surgery music that you hear throughout this podcast. Also, on one of my trips to Korea, I got to hang out with a French violin maker, an old friend of mine, Marc Cheveneau. He has a really unusual story. Mark might be the only highly skilled craftsman I know that was brought to Korea to ply his trade. And Mark has some crazy stories about how he originally came to Korea with some kind of dodgy employers who didn't really work out his visa properly. He was totally drunk. We never can trust the French fucker. Mark turned that kind of weird experience in a smallish town in South Korea in the late 90s into this really amazing career. All these years later, he's got a really successful business in Seoul, and I catch up with him in his atelier in the fine arts district of Seoul, where he was helping a young violin student with her posture and discussing the sweat on her bow. You want to check your violin? Yes. (laughs) When people play, the sweat on the finger get inside the, the frog here, so he burned the wood. Back when I was playing music in South Korea with We Need Surgery and some other bands that I was dabbling in, I met a guy named Brad Wheeler. And Brad was just this phenomenal drummer from Newfoundland. 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 Brad was this amazing drummer and all-around music talent who was dabbling in bands at the same time I was. So we knew each other from music circles. Eventually, Brad would work on some music for my band that we would take to Canada to shop around to record labels to get a record deal. And it worked, so he's obviously talented. Brad also went from teaching English full-time many years ago to doing music full-time. And Brad now has a studio in Seoul where he produces and records amazingly successful and award-winning music for Korean bands. And we had a great time basically just getting wasted in his studio in Seoul and him telling me the story of how he went from teaching English to a full-time music career. Because I had this place, people were like, oh, I heard you did this, can you record my band? So I was like, I'll do it for you. And they're like, how much? Like, I don't know. Let's do it. At the time I was teaching, you know, doing this as my hobby and then teaching eight hours a day and then working at the studio eight hours a day to having so much work that I couldn't teach anymore. It snowballed. And since then now it's been like nine nominations at the Korean Music Award, Rock Album of the Year won last year, Pop Album of the Year, nominated for Folk Album. This is how I crawl and this is how I crawl. As promised, I told you I was going to tell you why this podcast is called Rutabaga. I guess the main reason is that it was just really hard to come up with a good name. Somehow, the word Rutabaga came up, and it just reminded me of putting down roots in faraway places. Funny thing is, I thought everybody knew what a Rutabaga was, but it turns out a lot of my UK friends here in Shanghai had no idea what I was talking about when I told them the name. I guess rutabaga, which is a kind of turnip in case you don't know, is called a Swede in the UK. Another funny thing that came up related to the name, which I thought was worth mentioning, is that when I was 
bouncing around the idea of the name with some friends and uh, it came up somewhere that rutabaga is also the name of a gene in fruit flies that controls their memory, learning, and their behavior, which I thought was apropos because basically this whole thing is about memories and remembering the people that I've met over the years living abroad. And I guess it's about learning too, because I learned a lot from a lot of these guests, or if I didn't learn something from them, I was at least inspired by them, and that's kind of the same thing in a way. It turns out that the rutabaga fruit fly gene was discovered by a Korean scientist, because my journey as an expat started in South Korea, as did a lot of the stories and connections that you're going to hear about in these upcoming episodes. Finally, I just want to say a huge shout out to all the people who let me come into your lives and disrupt your lives and come into your homes and and give me your time to participate in this podcast, crazy podcast idea, actually. Most of all, I just have to say a huge thanks to Wendy Tenery in Atlanta, who was an original part of this podcast. And even though Wendy's not currently working on the podcast, her personal, professional, and creative touches are all over every episode, including this one, and all the ones that are going to be coming up in the future. So I really owe you a big one, Wendy, for all that you've done for Rutabaga. Well, there you go. That's a little bit about what you're going to hear, but um, I promise there's a lot more stuff I haven't mentioned here. And I got some new ideas from living and traveling in China for the last few months. And I've got some really exciting stuff that I think you'll like a lot. So just stick with me as I hone my editing skills and recording skills and interviewing skills. Please follow Rutabaga on all the social media. Rutabaga is on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and check out our blog at rutabaga.org for news and updates and you can kind of check out the history of the making of rutabaga podcast on the blog so and that is r-o-o-t-a-b-a-g dot o-r-g don't forget to spell rutabaga with two o's r-o-o-t-a-b-a-g when you're looking for us on any of the social media please follow us and stay tuned for more episodes